Hey, good morning, everybody. You guys thought we were done, didn't you? No. Back into Hebrews we go. My name is Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here at Portico, and it's really great to see you all and to be here with you. We are back in Hebrews. We have to finish chapter 13. And chapter 13 is a really interesting chapter to end the book with because it is so practical. It basically ends this whole sermon with a list of things, a list of encouragements from the author. And the author is encouraging the audience in a way that is perfectly in line with the rest of the book. And so if you remember, or if you don't, you'll be reminded now what Hebrews is all about. Hebrews is a letter written to Christians that they might continue to live as Christians, that they might finish the Christian race, that they would make it, that they wouldn't be pulled out of the faith, that they wouldn't become a casualty of all of the pressure that is put on them. And that's something that we can all, I think, really relate with. And actually, that reality has kind of gained a little bit of popularity in the last, I don't know, however long, some period of time. But we are familiar, and we've labeled it, and we call that thing, at least in some expressions of it, deconstruction. I think last year, we kind of opened that up a little bit. Maybe that was two years ago now. Who can remember? But we looked at some of the elements of why people do what they call deconstruction. And that term is, um, of course, used in very different ways. It can mean, people can use it to mean kind of a reanalysis of the things that they were taught to make sure that what they actually believe corresponds to the faith that is articulated in the Bible. I would call that more reforming than deconstructing, but it doesn't matter what you call it. But there's another um, reality that people use that term to describe. And that, that reality is more like a complete demolition. A demolition of the faith. Taking a wrecking ball and just doing away with it. And then recreating something that is maybe more palatable or more agreeable to our modern culture. And in the end, it's a departure from everything that we would say is articulated in Scripture. It's a redefinition of what it means to be a person. It's a redefinition of what it means that God is God. It's a redefinition of sin and salvation. And so there's a leaving behind of the faith. And that's what is going on here in this early church, this early group of Christians, maybe for different reasons, but as you'll see today, maybe not. Maybe the playbook to get Christians to abandon the faith has always been the same. And what it's going to do is it's going to put pressure on you. The author of Hebrews is going to get into our business this morning because he knows that this is where the rubber meets the road. 
This is where the faith actually gets lived out, and it's hard. And so we're going to push into it. We're going to unpack it. But before we do that, I want to say a quick caveat that I'm going to be reminding you of throughout this entire morning. And that is that for um, the Christian faith, doctrine goes before ethics. What does that mean? Nobody knows. <laughs> doctrine goes before ethics. So here's, here's what that actually means. The Bible tells us what is true and the Bible also tells us how we should then live in response to its truth. But for as long as humans have been around, we try and switch that. We try and switch that around to look at ways that we can live to make things true. So today we're going to be talking about the kingdom. We're going to be talking about what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God that has been given to us. And our temptation is going to be to say how we should live is actually how we enter the kingdom. So we need to live like that, this in order to enter into the kingdom. But that's not what the Christian faith is. The Christian faith is going to remind us that we have received kingdom as a gift. And our life in the kingdom is response to the gift. So we're going to actually go back into chapter 12 to remind ourselves of how this connects and read just two verses, the last two verses of chapter 12, because you can't read chapter 13 disconnected from it because you have to remember what chapter 12 is communicating in order to actually identify and locate properly what chapter 13 is all about. So you can turn with me to Hebrews 12, verses 28 and 29, and we're going to go through chapter 13, verse 6. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and, let, uh, and thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Please pray with me. <clears throat> Father, um, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter. We thank you for you entering into the nitty-gritty of our lives. That you have not um, left us alone to figure things out, but you've given us this very clear, simple instruction 
And at the same time, Lord, as we hear this, we feel condemned. We feel guilty. We feel ashamed. We feel distant. We're reminded that it doesn't really feel like we belong in your kingdom. And so, God, I ask that you would convey to us the power of those words that you have not left us or forsaken us, that you are our helper. Help us to trust that, Lord. Help us to cling to that as we continue to pursue living life in response to everything that you've given us. We pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. So doctrine comes before ethics. What is the doctrine? What is the teaching? What is the reality that is first that we are then building on from this passage? Well, you could say a lot of different things, but I want to turn your attention to something that is known as the doctrine of adoption because I think that is what the author is actually building from here. The doctrine of adoption. The doctrine of, the, of adoption is the reality that Christians have been brought into the family of God by the blood of Jesus. That Jesus died to forgive us of our sins and to also put on us his righteousness, which is a family heirloom of God's family. And so when we trust Jesus, we are brought into this family and this family is, is described throughout Scripture over and over again as a kingdom. And that's what we have received, that unshakable kingdom. But you can also look back and see how this identity as children plays into this bigger concept of kingdom. You can look at um, verse 22 of chapter 12. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, and heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The firstborn is Jesus, and he so identifies himself with us that we are brought into that assembly. That is how we enter into this kingdom. And it's a gift. It's something that you have been given. And it's something that's unshakable. And it's also something that gets lived out. Ethics does follow. We do change how we live in response to what God has done and said and given us. And so if adoption is the doctrine that this passage is building on, then love is the ethic. Love is what follows adoption. And love in these ways. We're going to look at four different ways that brotherly or familial love continues. How we live it out. How we live out this love. The first way is in hospitality. The second is sacrificial love. The third is in sexuality. And the fourth is in generosity. So let's open this up. It's really practical. Really practical. 
do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. The first part of that verse, I'm with. The second part, you lost me. What does that mean? Well, as I was reminded by somebody, it's almost certainly a reference back to Genesis when Abraham is visited by Yahweh and the two angels. And what the author is doing is he's referencing that to show something that's true of practicing hospitality to strangers, and that is you never know who is going to come through the door, and you never know what kind of impact it's going to have in the spiritual realm. Now, does that mean that you literally might have some angels? I don't know. It happened. So could it happen again? Maybe. I don't know. I don't want to know, frankly. I would probably pass out if an angel actually showed up. And so I'm fine being ignorant with that. But here's what it's communicating. What it's communicating is that hospitality shown to strangers is a prerogative of how God expresses his love to this world. Now, in that culture, what the author is actually describing, this act of hospitality shown to strangers, is a form of Christian love. And so, specifically, he's talking here about Christians traveling from town to town and in need of a place to stay. So that's specifically what he's referencing here. We don't need to like limit how we live this out to that very specific instance. That would be silly. Like, let's limit how loving we are to each other. No, let's build on that reality and consider a couple things. I want to think about our church for a minute and our city and how this principle applies specifically to us and the opportunity that we have to live out this form of brotherly love by showing hospitality to the stranger. We're in an incredibly transient area. If you are here long enough, you will see a lot of people come and go. If you've been here for two years, you are the old guard. You're a veteran. You're the establishment. And here's what happens, and I know, because I've gone through this. I continue to go through this. I was reminded of this this week. What happens is you start trying to figure out who are the people who are going to be here? Because I'm done saying goodbye. It's too hard. It's investment that just goes away, goes to another city. People leave. Sometimes they don't even say goodbye. And so I'm going to find out who's, who are the real ones. Who's going to stay here? And what you do is you start protecting. You start building your kingdom with people who are in that category. You make friends only with people who you're like, oh, okay, you... You have, you have some property, there's some children that are in schools, like, oh, okay, <laughs> now it's safe. This happens. But our church has always been a church of the stranger, a church of the passerby, because that's where we're at. People come here for a year or two, and then they leave. And so here is specifically a way that we can show hospitality in the way that the author's talking about, and that is by seeking the people out who are passing through. 
and loving them like they'll never leave. Because you are completely investing and blessing something that's not going to, in your mind, bring something back to you. And that is the kind of selfless hospitality that the early church was known for. Not only were they known for it, they kind of depended on it. Because it wasn't safe to go from city to city. You were going to get swindled. If you went to a place that was known to, that was kind of like a hotel, what we would consider a hotel, it was a place where there was crime, where there was robbery. Because what better way to make a quick buck than to rob somebody who's just passing through? And for Christians, as soon, because they're kind of on the outcasts of this early, of this ancient world, it was especially vulnerable for them. And so as the church is growing, Christians are traveling all the time, and they were depending on the hospitality of the churches that they're traveling to. And it's the same for us. In a world where being a Christian is increasingly hard, where there's more and more pressure put on you, where we feel more powerfully the disconnect of a broken society, our hospitality to the newcomer, to the stranger, has massive implications for demonstrating how we even understand the fact that Jesus loved us in that way. And so showing hospitality is an element of this ethic of love, but not just hospitality to your friends, not just hospitality to the people that are easy, Hospitality to the people who are different, who are difficult, who are passing by. Selfless, loving, sacrificial hospitality. The second thing that the author opens up is remembering those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are in the body. So here he's using two examples to basically convey the same reality. When a Christian was, was imprisoned for being a Christian in the early church, those prisons didn't give you a dollar a day and, a, and three meals. That's how it works here. That's not how it worked there. They gave you nothing. And so if somebody didn't show up and bring food to you, you didn't eat. They didn't bring you a blanket, you slept on the ground with nothing to cover you. It was pretty ruthless. The other thing is that most of these Christians, they had, especially early on in the history of the church, they'd left families. They'd burned bridges because they were going against their family's entrenched way of worshiping. They left either paganism or Judaism. And so they had nobody. Who was going to show up for them? Not their families. They were completely dependent on Christians coming. People who were in their church, remembering them, bringing them food. But there was a problem. The jailers, the government, depending on where they were and depending on the period of time, 
We're systematically trying to eliminate Christianity and Christians. And so they would pay attention to who would come and bring those Christians food. They would watch to see who would care for them because they knew, oh, there's more. Let's go get them too. So this, what's, as you first read it, it seems very basic. It seems completely common, like not that big of a deal. But what it is actually communicating is a love and a care and a remembrance, a connection where you are putting yourself on the line for somebody. Maybe it's somebody you don't even know that well. But you're putting your own safety at risk, potentially, for them. Think about the ways, and like, we, we, are, we aren't in that type of society, right? We don't get imprisoned for being Christians. But there's types of prison that we find ourselves in all the time. There's alienation. There's social consequences to living publicly as a Christian that happen in your workplaces, that happen in friend groups, that happen in places where you go to recreate. And there's other Christians in those areas. And so for us, how can we live in a way that doesn't forget the people who are alienated or being isolated or being socially maligned? How can we instead identify with them, love them, show them fellowship, join them in their suffering? How can we do that? Maybe it's speaking up. Maybe it's simply going and encouraging someone who you see is being targeted and saying, I'm a Christian too. I love you. Let me pray for you. It could look like a lot of different things. The principle is that your love, your service to each other, our service to one another, we can't allow selfish interest to limit it. We have to remember that we have been united by the blood of Christ, and it's his shed blood. Jesus put himself in prison to take us out of prison. And that's what we're reflecting. That's the type of family that this is. Third way is through sexuality. Verse 4, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Okay, so now we're seeing something. We're seeing that the first two things are kind of these positive acts, acts of love that are pretty radical. They're ordinary, they're basic, but they're radical in that they cost a lot. And now we're going to look at two categories that since this letter was written, and even before then, God's people are always pressured in. And that is how our bodies are used and how our money is used. So let's talk about human sexuality because the text does. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Among all. So this isn't just a verse for the married people telling them not to have an affair. 
This is a verse for the church to say how you hold marriage is important. It's a reflection of your love. It's actually a building block, a foundation of how God wants you to live out love. And this has always been a pressure point. It's not new for us. We're experiencing it in different ways, but it's the same it's the same issue. It's the same wedge that tries that Satan tries to use to kind of say, "Oh yeah, it's too hard. It costs too much. God doesn't really love you. You don't need that." And so you let go. And what you don't realize is you're letting go of something that the Lord actually wants to use to show off his beauty, his love, his care. I was thinking about this and thinking about how important this mindset is, how important it is for us to be a culture in our church that loves marriage, that holds it in high esteem among all, that keeps the marriage bed undefiled, basically saying like the commitment between husband and wife is pure, it's good, it is like attractive. It's used as a tool to build healthy societies. It's used as a tool to build healthy families. It's used as a tool to reflect God's glory, reflect his love for us. And so how do we do that? Well, first, we do it by allowing God and receiving marriage from him, allowing him to tell us what it is. So it's marriage is between one biological man and one biological woman. And that's the gift that he has given. He has made it that way with that intention of showing the unity within diversity that then produces offspring that produces blessing, that produces a solid and stable society. It's like, okay, well, I guess I'm with you, but we live in a real world that's broken, and that hardly ever happens, and people have different desires, and that doesn't really fit into a modern world anymore. I'd say, yeah, you're right, but it hasn't ever fit into the world. Marriage has been attacked from the beginning. That's what Satan, his first act is to attack marriage, to attack the marriage between Adam and Eve, to cause them to have division, to separate them from God's good provision. And so here's, I'm, I just want to speak a little bit. I'm going kind of off script here. But I want to speak a little bit about specific ways that we can do this and why it's so important. And so I'm going to start with that, that part for first. And there's a lot of kids here at Portico. And kids are generally, in, at least in abstract, they're appreciated by people. Kids are seen as important, right? Like they're the future. Like if you don't spend too much time with them, they might even sound fun. <laughs> and there's a lot of people who are trying to figure out how do we raise kids to be healthy, productive members of society? Because it's hard. And it doesn't seem like it goes well. 
And so there's so much, there's whole industries built on how can you create a healthy attachment with parent and child, and how can you create all these opportunities to, for the children to excel, and you have to have a schedule that's filled up, and you can't leave any potential untapped, and on and on and on. And yet, the marriage that that child is a product of is cold. The child sees that there's no love between mom and dad. The child feels the pressure of all of the attention and expectations and hopes and desires of the parents put onto them. They feel the pain of a broken family. And so what this verse is telling us is when we honor marriage, we're not just staying married because, oh yeah, we need to, it's you know, for the good of the kids. Staying married is such a poor substitute for what marriage actually is. Marriage is love. It's cherishing. It is growing in affection. It's appreciating and laying down your life for somebody that you value as a partner. Staying connected and intimate, and it's powerful. And here's why, because in Ephesians we're told that is the best human representation of Christ's love for the church. And his love is not cold. And the church's love is not cold. It's an intimate burning fire that continues to grow. And so here's why this isn't just written to people who are married. It's written to a community of faith. Because in order for us to be in marriages that do that, we need everybody. Here's some specific ways of how that works itself out. I'm just going to go to Ephesians really quick. And this is something that's quoted all the time. We're just gonna, I'm not going to get into it. But it's just simple instructions, husbands and wives. Like, here's husbands, what you do. Here's wives, what you do. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, here is a different way. Here's something that's interesting to think about. The women are hearing that. Like, oh, yeah, that's what my husband should be doing. So do you think Paul wanted the women to know that that was the instructions that God had for the role of husband so that she could say, well, you haven't really loved me enough this week and you, know, you didn't sacrifice that and Jesus did, so like, you're missing out. No. The partnership that is honoring and is um, building up a marriage is a mindset that says, how can I live in a way where it's easy for him to lay down his life for me? How can I help him joyfully respond to God's instruction? Now, get a bunch of friends around that person, helping her live that out. And it's no longer a burden. It's a joy. 
It's something that you get to see the love of the church reflected in these marriages, and vice versa. So men are instru- or women are instructed to submit to their husbands, to follow him, to allow him to be the authority in her life, just as Jesus is the authority of the church. So do you think that Paul wanted the men to be like, yeah, now I have a weapon to beat up on my wife whenever she resists anything that I want? No. He's saying it's a way of showing men, you need to live and lead in your marriage in a way where your wife wants to follow, where it's easy for her to follow you where it's easy for her to enjoy your sacrificial service and your leadership. And this is taking place in the context of a group of sinners. And so I need men and women in my life helping me to do that. I need men and women in my life reminding me of ways that I am a jerk and I'm hard to follow where my authority isn't a blessing, it's a curse. I need people seeing that and bringing it to me and allowing me to repent, allowing me to grow in that way. And my wife needs that for her as well. And so you see, this is a group project, and the fruit of it is marriages that are growing in affection, in love, and a church that's growing in intimacy and power. And children grow in that context, and they flourish in that context. And it turns into a little embodiment of this kingdom. It turns into a visual representation of the ethic of love. The fourth thing is money. Keeping your life free from love of money and being content with what you have. If you haven't picked up on this yet, this is basically a summary of the Ten Commandments. And so he's ending it with the antidote to coveting, and that is contentment. And so he's saying that, okay, yes, we use our bodies all the time to... um, rebel against God and to assert our authority over and against God. And we use our things to replace God, to make God not needed, not necessary. But what he's showing us here is that when we do that, when we replace God, when we use money to do what God should be doing in our lives, what happens to our hearts? We start to love it. And then we are never content with what we have because we need more. Because even though money is a really good tool, it's a terrible master. And so as you love it, as you use your life to serve it, to pursue it, or what it can do for you, you're attaching your heart to it, and it will pull you right out of the faith. Because you're, you cannot love God and money. You can either love God or love money. And so keeping your life free from money means being generous 
It means giving it away. It means looking for opportunities to use your money to serve and love God. Remember, this is all instructions on how we can offer to God acceptable worship. And so all of your material possessions need to be placed under the lordship of Christ in his stewardship, being obedient to him. And so I want to encourage a few of you, those budgeters in here, some of you don't budget. I'm not going to get into that. But <laughs> most of you do because we live in D.C. Your budget might have put heart idolatry into a spreadsheet. It might have put your idolatry of money onto autopilot. I don't know when you made that. Who knows? Does your budget in any way change when you grow spiritually. Because if you made your budget and you set it like 10 years ago, I really hope that you have grown in generosity since then. And so reassess it. Change it. Use it to reflect what is actually happening in you. Be content with what you have, but never be content with your holiness. Always seek to grow. Always seek more ways that you can push into being generous, to giving it away. Because when you're giving something away, you're loving God, and you're not allowing yourself to love money. You're not allowing yourself to love whatever money provides for you. And now, you're back to depending on God for that. You're back to receiving God as the provider for you, for your family, for your life. You're receiving God as your security. You're receiving God as the one who is actually connecting and giving you everything that you have. And you're worshiping him with it. And that's what brotherly love looks like. Now, in all of these things, this is like, you know, four things that you can really beat up on yourself with. We've all failed in these multiple ways over and over again. This didn't stop when we, when we first became Christians. We continue to fall short of a standard of the ethic of love. And I want to remind you of something. This is from 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's pretty exhaustive. Who will? Who will inherit the kingdom of God? Verse 11. And such were some of you but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You have been adopted, Christian. You, who have gone in repentance and faith to Jesus, have been adopted into his family. You have been washed, you have been sanctified. You inherit the kingdom of God. 
and your righteousness is not your own, but you have been bestowed with the righteousness of Christ because he's committed himself to us. I will never leave you or forsake you. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. You see, Jesus, or God, didn't just give us a kingdom that's unshakable. We've been given this beautiful, unshakable kingdom. Praise God for it. It's amazing. The contours of it show love. They make the invisible love of God visible to a world. Praise God. We've been given an unshakable king. Jesus has completely and perfectly embodied all of this as he lived out his life for us. And that's why we can trust those promises that he will never leave us or forsake us. Because he has already been forsaken. And just like we learned, in his ascension, he continues to intercede and to send his spirit and to draw us closer in to fellowship with him. Think of specifically Jesus as the husband and how his life honored what marriage is really about. How faithful did Jesus remain even to an unfaithful spouse? Though all of us were not faithful, he was faithful. Man, he could have gotten such a better deal somewhere else. There's people on this earth that aren't Christians that would have been more faithful, that would have been more disciplined, that would have been able to do more because of their natural gifts and abilities. No, he stuck with us. The simple, the children. He committed himself to us in that way. And he's reminding us of that promise. It's a promise that he has made from the very beginning. It's a promise he made to Abraham. It's a promise that he made to Adam and Eve right after they were unfaithful. And so when you are rooted and grounded in your adoption into his family, when you have him as your king, now you are free to embody love. You're free to release all of the areas of your life that are hard and to continue to grow in grace. We're going to get into that more next week. But remember, the ethic of this kingdom is love. And he's made it very clear how he wants his brothers and sisters to love each other in those ways. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, God, for this time, we thank you that you have such a tender heart towards us, that you would remind us of things, things that we take for granted, things that we um, just forget about sometimes, things that overwhelm us, things that bring up guilt and shame, and you wash them, Lord. Your word helps us to remember that you have loved us in such a way that you are actually changing us to embody the love that you have first loved us with. And so, God, I ask that you would help us to do that, that, that we would truly grow in offering this type of worship, 
and gratitude for everything that you've given us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.